This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Ken Doan holds a unique position in Australia's cultural heritage, his work often described as the most original style to come out of the country. Awarded the Order of Australia for Services to Art, Design and Tourism, Ken Doan has, in many parts of the world, come to symbolise Australia and Australians, creative, optimistic and bold. I went to interview Ken in his studio in the Rocks in the city. I was walking with my dear friend Justin and I mentioned that you were coming on Five of My Life and he said, my granny put on his first exhibition. So tell me about Gizzy Scheinberg and your first exhibition. Well, that's exactly right, Mrs Scheinberg. Right, uh, Justin's granny, that's it, right? 1980, she ran in those days the biggest and most commercially successful gallery in Sydney. And I wanted to have an exhibition on my 40th birthday... And I wanted it to be in a big commercial gallery to show that I could do that. But already I knew in my mind that I would open, as I did, a couple of months later, my own gallery. And since that time, I've always had my own gallery, which I see no different from a chef owning a restaurant. Things a very straightforward thing. But I'll always be grateful for Mrs. Scheinberg. She was a lovely lady. She came, I had a little studio in North Sydney in those days because I was still doing some freelance advertising work because I need to make money. And uh, she was kind enough to come and look at the work. She came with a chauffeur. Uh, I can remember distinctly this, you know, shorter, uh, smiling lady coming in and looking at the work and saying, yes, I'll give you a show, which, you know, for a young painter, although, as I say, I was almost 40, but it was a very significant move So, for so me. she, like, spotted you, sort of, she loved what you did well, and said, I'll, I'll put you yeah, on. That's I mean, great. There was a few things, I think, well, a woman with great taste, understanding and clearly <laughs> new talent when she saw it. No, who knows? Look, uh, I shared the exhibition with two other people. One was uh, Arthur Boyd's brother, David, And the other guy was a rather decorative painter from Melbourne. I'm not sure what's happened to him because she had quite a big gallery with three sections in it and I had the major section. And it was very exciting. I'm 40 years of age. I'm showing my first work. I think probably two thirds of the work sold. Well, so, and one of those was to my mate Justin, who has sent me this morning the picture that he bought on that day. Oh, it, it hasn't weathered fantastic. very well. You must have been on cheap paper, mate. Did you remember that? I do. For, for our um, people listening, it's a musical score with the notes uh, uh, sailboats. It's a gorgeous piece of work. Well, I'll tell you another thing about this particular drawing. James Morrison, he put out an album. I oh, we've got to come and talk about that. So, All right. I, well, yeah. this drawing is very significant to that album. Right. Because... Uh, 
one of the tracks is called the Wednesday Race, which is what this drawing is called. Right. And he gave a musical notation to the first lines at the first part of the drawing. So when you hear the piece of music, the intro into uh, the intro into that, it sounds a bit strange, and it's because he's playing my drawing. He's, he's reading. That's he's fantastic. He's reading the, where I put boats instead of notes. He's turned them into notes, and it became the start of that piece of music. Wait. I cannot wait to come on and talk about that album. But we're going to start, as we do traditionally, with your first choice, which is your film. Uh, and you have chosen the film that the... Uh, Library of Congress in America rank as the most watched film in human history. Well, I didn't know that. (laughs) You've chosen the 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. Oz. So, Ken, tell us why you've chosen that. I've chosen it because it's the first film that I can remember seeing and I saw it in a tiny little wooden cinema theatre. Who uses the word cinema Uh, in those days? It was the pictures. And it was a little country town called McLean on the Clarence River. I would have been six. I think it's the first colour film that I'd ever seen. For a little boy, it's a rather frightening film. There were some frightening parts of it. I think I've probably seen it once since that time. But for me, it symbolised the great thrill of being in a big dark space with lots of other people with your attention riveted to the screen. Right. So it's the essence of movies, isn't it? It's the essence of movies. And in a time when all magazines in Australia were in sepia, because we're talking 1946, 1947. So no colour magazines even though my mother uh, had a subscription to American Saturday Evening Post. I think we're probably the only people north of Sydney had that. And I can still remember the smell of that magazine, opening that magazine, seeing those covers. Not just the Norman Rockwell covers, but covers that I know now were done by some really great illustrators and great painters. So... The colour movie suddenly for the first time and then colour magazines started to change the way I looked at things or understood And, and how long were you in McLean for as, as a family? Uh, we lived there 1945 to 1950. My father was... I didn't know my father until I was five. He right. was away as a pilot, a bomber pilot in England for five years and I used to see this photograph beside my mother's bed and they would... People would say, well, that's your father, that's dad. And suddenly this strange person called dad, who I you know, loved him dearly the rest of his life, uh, came into my life. A, a, an experience I think probably a lot of Australian men and women of my age had uh, with somebody coming back from the war. You have to adjust everything. Anyway, so my dad, we lived in Belmore in those days, Belmore had cows. I mean, real cows, not big cats. They had real cows. Uh, they had open fields and they had dairies. I mean, now Belmore, very multicultural uh, suburb with mosques. Um, but in those days, different. So 
1945, Modi's father decided that he wanted to get out of cities and go north. So I don't even know why we went to McLean. McLean had 2,000 people in that area, and I think there's still about 2,000 people. It's called the Scottish Town, and strangely enough, the telegraph poles are painted with tartan, the bottom of them. And they have the Highland Gathering up there once a year, and they have pipe bands. You know, it's uh, an old... The highway bypasses it now, but it's a wonderful, wonderful little town. Wonderful memories. For for your second choice, we are going to stick with a historical children's classic theme uh, because you have chosen Wind in the Willows. Tell me about that, mate. My mother was an avid reader and read to me constantly. So I chose that book for two reasons. One, the memory of my mother reading it to me, which I think is very important in any household, that the mother and the father, I mean, I read to my kids uh, all the time, but to, to have such a deliciously sentimental little story to have you drift off to sleep, very much a childhood thing, even though it's a quite sophisticated book in some ways. And, um, you know, the characters that were in that with the toad and Molly, and there was a particular passage that always used to strike me. It's about when Molly was going down by the river and suddenly he smelt home. He smelt the feeling of his little home that he hadn't seen for a while. I mean, it's bloody tears to a glass eye even now, you know. It's a lovely, lovely story. Tell me about your mum. Well, my mother was, like all my fiercely uh, loving to me. I could, if I murdered something, my mother would say, well, look, he probably deserved it. He probably deserved it, you know. Uh, So she was very proud of me and uh, very um, encouraging from my... Look, if you're an only child and you grow up in the country, you have to use your imagination quite a a lot. So my mother would say, uh, if I'd been to some kid's birthday party, you know, what was it like? And I would say, well, look, I'll do you a drawing of what it was like. It was easier for me to communicate by doing that particular drawing. Even at that early age? Yeah. And then if you go, you know, towards, you know, much later in my career when I might have, you know, done a few things, you know, I remember my mother once rushing across Red Square to accost somebody that was wearing one of my sweatshirts to say, my son did that, my son did that. (laughs) That's gorgeous. (laughs) Anyway. So we're going to come on to your third choice, which I'm looking forward to because it references the the painting that I've uh, mentioned earlier on. Uh, You've chosen as your song Sydney by Night by James Morrison. Fabulous track. I must have listened to it a hundred times over the last three weeks. Good, isn't it? Uh, And that was inspired by your painting, The Beautiful Sydney Night. So tell me about the album, the concept behind yeah, look, it and the painting. he's a good bloke, James, and uh, I think somebody financed in the early part of his career, we're going back quite a long time, and, you know, gave him the money to produce uh, whatever album he wanted, and uh, we'd become friends. And one of the great treasures that I've got is one of James Morrison's trumpets. I've got the trumpet, which he's autographed to me, that he used in Postcards from Down Under. So the deal was, 
for, for an album, you need nine tracks. So he wrote seven pieces of music to seven of my paintings, and then I did two paintings to two extra songs that he and uh, his brother John had written. But you see, if you go into a sound studio and you hear the music that somebody has written that's been inspired by a painting... That's pretty good. What a wonderful thing. That's an amazing experience to have, you know. So I heard it in the sound booth, obviously, and I was knocked out. But the first time I heard it performed live, strange enough, was on a big overseas liner, pretty much where we are now, next to the overseas terminal. And James and his band had been invited to play. And they showed a lot of my paintings as well. So... After they looked at the pictures, we went into this lounge. And there are lots of older American guys, guys with, you know, red trousers and uh, hands tooth and red jackets. And, you know, they were expecting a kind of musical evening. And I can remember it's a couple of guys had taken some of the really big lounge chairs and moved them right up beside the bandstand. Well, when James hit the first notes of Sydney by night, these guys got up and ran to the back of the room <laughs> because it's a pretty strong blast at the start. Yeah, I love it. Sydney by night. Always exciting. Now, on the subject of inspiration, so, so music inspiring art, is, is who are the artists that you get the most inspiration from or have done? Well... On a bookshelf just up there, I can see a Van Gogh book that I bought when I was about 11 or 12, and I still have it, and it's pretty hard not to like Van Gogh's work. I mean, the whole story about not selling the paintings, that's a piece of romance, and it sticks in people's minds, and it's one of the things that a lot of people still think that artists uh, should be starving or dead. Starving or dead, that would be really good. Uh, I'm trying to show, like a lot of other artists, that there are other alternatives to that. But also I think the great thing about Van Gogh's work is that some of the most powerful things that he did were vases of flowers, not gigantic, you know, battle scenes or unbelievable vistas. It's a vase of flowers, but he just happened to bring something to it. So, of course, you're influenced by every single thing that you've seen. I'm influenced by Dutch still lifes, by Chinese calligraphy, by Japanese painting, by American abstraction. Everything that you see goes in and you can... Art doesn't drop out of the sky and hit somebody on the head. You know, you learn from everybody. What's your favourite gallery? My favourite gallery... Hmm. Apart from my own? Yeah. Um, well, look, there's two answers to that. I've never been asked that question. There's a gallery in the back of Nice that deals uh, with naive paintings, which I just always a thrill uh, to see. And um, any gallery that's showing work that I love. I mean, I've been to St. Petersburg a few times, and it's... Uh, Is it the Hermitage? At the Hermitage, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can never spend enough time there. It showed you how 
forward-thinking some of the Russian industrialists were when they bought so much early uh, French works. See Matisse, see Bonnard, see, see paintings that, you know, make her cry. When I go to a gallery, I like to set a certain pace of working. Unless I'm walking, I mean. Unless I'm going specifically to see a painting, I like to walk. Not, not fast, not slow. And find out what stops me. Right. What stops me. And sometimes you can walk through and just walk right out again. Because it's always half a conversation, art. It has to be something that you feel. So for your fourth choice, we're going to stay in Sydney and we're going to go to Middle Harbour in Sydney Harbour to a delightful location, Chinaman's Beach. Tell me about that, Ken. Well, I've lived in Chinaman's Beach for probably 60 years. I know it quite well. Uh, It's a little hidden beach in between Balmoral and the Spit. And I first saw it when I was about 13 or 14 and... I walked, we lived in Balmoral. I walked around the headland and I came across this tiny beach, a couple of hundred metres long maybe, and tucked in the corner of that beach a little tiny white house, almost totally overgrown. And I just fell in love with it then and I really wanted it. Not in the sense... Gee, it'd be nice to live there. I really wanted it. So you got to jump ahead then till probably when I was 30 and I came back from England after being there for five years. And we bought a house in Chinaman's Beach. We bought the back of the park, an old Federation house. But I used to go down to the end of the beach and look back at this tiny little house, which was called the cabin, And I will the guy out of it. (laughs) And you can do that. It's like pointing the bone. You can will him out of it because the guy that was in there didn't love it. Right. But I loved it. My day starts by walking to the studio. It's the first thing, 5.30, quarter to six. I go into the studio to see what I've been working on, to see whether the fairies might have been there during the night to fix something up or to find out whether it's any good or it's a load of old crap. So you make those decisions. Then I walk down, Judy and I, uh, I feed the fish, first of all. I feed maybe 30 or 40 brim, quite big, big ones who come and wait for me there. I don't want to catch them. And in fact, if anybody looks like they're going to fish for them, I put out a I put out a rod with no bait on it, so it looks as though I'm fishing. Um, I walk the beach. We clean the beach. This morning, for instance, there are about 10 or 12 beer bottles. There was an old bong. There was a few bits of discarded clothing. So all that goes in the brin. And miraculously, two little cars, little model cars, a little green one and a little uh, yellow Ferrari. So that'll go to my grandparents kids. People are getting much better at cleaning up the beach than they used to. The water's much cleaner, the beach is much cleaner. 
But, uh, yeah, I've lived there for a very long time. And, of course, in the whole area of Mossman, uh, certainly around Sirius Cove, Arthur Street and worked there, Tom Roberts worked there. It's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a place that artists over the years have worked. So Sydney, obviously hugely important um, inspiration and focus for, for lots of your amazing work. Uh, but I want to talk about another location, uh, just to ask you um, about Japan. How has Japan <laughs> fitted into Ken Doan's life? With a man who was my best man, and we went to school together. And he's a lovely, lovely old friend. Uh, we went to Japan because I think we both shared an interest in contemporary Japanese design, traditional Japanese design. I remember we were watching sumo wrestling uh, on television and we decided to give that a bit of a try. Bob's always a bit heavier and a bit bigger than me. Uh, and we tried a bit of, um, you know, sumo in the hotel room until we, uh, in fact, unfortunately, went into a, a kind of screen, not a very expensive one, but uh, we had some great adventures in Japan. Anyway, since that time, I was, and I still am quite well known in Japan. I've had a lot of exhibitions in Japan. I've done work for various Japanese companies in Japan. I'm in collections in Japan. And I've learned some great lessons uh, about being in Japan, oh, from Japanese people. Now, t tell me, tell me one you of You want to hear a lesson? I want to hear a Japanese lesson. Okay, I'm playing, I play golf, right? I'm playing in the Suntory Pro-Am. They've given me a set of golf clubs with my name on the bag, right, which is just slightly disconcerting. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe, you know, be a couple of thousand people, watch it, won't be too bad. There were 10,000 people... <laughs> And it was televised. <laughs> and I was playing with an Australian guy called uh, Brian Jones, who'd been up there for a while, and the uh, deputy chairman of Suntory, and the, I think, the last uh, uh, British ambassador. The group behind us was the current British ambassador. Uh, the chairman of Suntory, one of the Azaki brothers, who most famous uh, golfers in Japan, and a, and a big-time businessman. So you got these two groups, and we came to the 10th hole. We finished, and there was a bit of a hold-up. So you got two groups waiting, and there's two stands of people, quite a lot of people, and some people are, you know, because they knew me or saw my name, they're calling out my name and all that. It's all very encouraging. Anyway, so it's my turn to drive. I hit the ball three metres, <laughs> maybe not much more than that, right? I top it totally. It just rolls along the ground. And I heard a noise from the crowd that I don't want to hear again, and it was the noise of impending death because I, they were trying to show me the correct thing to, for me to do would be to kill myself at that <laughs> point in time. People would rush in with a, with a stretcher. <laughs> I'd be taken away with a golf club embedded in my guts. There'd be a brief round of applause and they could get it. Here's the lesson. When I leant down to pick up the tea, I realised I would never, ever, 
be embarrassed again playing golf because I had reached the pinnacle. Right. <laughs> That's not the word, but the, I had reached the ultimate piece of golf embarrassment. <laughs> what a great lesson. And look, it's very important to know that. In life, it's very important to know when you're absolutely at the bloody bottom because there's only up. Absolutely. Now, um, I need your help on one thing. Is the chap who painted the Great Wave, I can never pronounce his name, Hokusai? Hokusai. Yeah, um, Hokusai. Just incredible. That bloke, he kept on going. And one of my favourite quotes about Japanese lessons of all time is he said at the age of 85 or something, everything I've done up until the age of 70, it's rubbish, ignore it, <laughs> including the Great Wave, <laughs> including the Mount Fuji <laughs> exhibition. Oh, you go, mate. And he thought, my best years are ahead, ahead of me. Yeah. I'm still learning. Yeah. I am going to paint yeah. until the day I fall yeah. off the perch. Oh, look, I share that perfectly. I understand that. I understand that. No one can tell me, you know, it doesn't matter what people say. You know yourself where you are and I've got a long way to go and I hope I'm around long enough to do it. That's the thing about all you want is the drive to continue to work. So the pleasure comes from work. Right. And again, there are no rules. I mean, some Australian painters, not Australian painters are in the world, towards the last uh, quarter of their life, they paint the same picture over and over and over. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just like having a way that you sing. Well, I would rather find, try and find different ways of doing things even very cliched things like Sydney Harbour, to find different ways of doing it because I need to surprise myself. If I can't surprise myself, what, 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 what is the point? And there's no point, or I don't find any point, in doing something you can do. Yep. You have to, to find out what you can't do. Yeah, mastery, purpose, control, I love it. Now, we're going to come on to your fifth and final uh, choice. You've played with the format a bit, Ken, and you've chosen uh, as your favourite possession uh, your family. Could you tell me uh, who's included within that description? Well, of course, it's not really a possession, but in the end, it's the most important thing of all. Well, there's my wife, Judy, that he, she and I have been married for 54 years, which is, you know, that's, 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 Congratulations. that's, that's quite a time. My daughter, Camilla, my son, Oscar, and my three grandchildren. And look, we work very closely together. And if you have a situation where one member of the family let's, has a definable talent, let's say me, how, how do the other people fit around that? And you don't want that to get in the way of everything. Well, with Judy, no problem. She's a very good fashion designer. You know, we won the Gold Award for Fashion 1991. So she knows what she's talking about. Uh, with Camilla, she went to university, got first class honours in, in, in visual communication, didn't ask me a question for five years, <laughs> wanted to do it on her own, which I, I appreciate. Uh, Oscar wasn't so sure, wasn't sure, really didn't want to be involved in the business, went to film school for a bit, went to New York, travelled around a bit, worked in a couple of advertising agencies. Uh, came to the gallery and, you know, I was always thinking, you know, what, what, what role could it be? And I remember he said to me one day, we were up in the big studio and he said, do you know how much we spend on colour prints? Because we had a lot of shops in those days. And I said, no, I've got no idea. 
Uh, and he told me the figure and he said, you know, we could buy a machine to do those color prints ourselves. I said, that's a good idea, why don't you do that? So he did that and then about six months after that, I made him the managing director. I put him in the corner office and we work for him now. He's very clever. <laughs> He's very clever. He's doing some amazing things. So you never own your family and some families uh, work closely, some are dysfunctional, so, but we happen to get on well. I think it's the thing that I'm proudest of, actually. Fantastic. Um, we coming to the last traditional extra question, which is, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? Ah, who'd I like to hear? Jeez. Yeah, look, James Morrison would be lovely to hear his thoughts because he's a funny guy and he is such a definable talent. I mean, that's the thing that you envy about the musician is the feedback and you understand how hypnotic it would be to have that. Like, I make a painting in the studio on my own. The dog barks twice if it's any good and I don't have a bloody dog anymore, <laughs> but used to. Woof, woof, that's a good one. But for the musician and especially somebody with the ability of James, it must be overwhelming. Ken Doan, thank you so much for sharing your choices on Five of My Life. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 